Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership podcast series, the world's largest weekly podcast dedicated to the topic of leadership. I'm Scott Miller, your host and interviewer each week. You know me also as the author of the book Master Mentors from HarperCollins, 30 Transformative Insights from our greatest minds, drawn from some of my favorite guests from the first two years of the podcast series, 30 individual stories from 30 different guests. In fact, Master Mentors Volume 2 is now available on Amazon and all major book sales for pre-orders, launching in early October, 30 new insights from 30 new mentors. In fact, today's guest is Master Mentor number 60. He is the culmination at the end of this book. His name, of course, is Ed Milette. He is my all-time favorite interviewee on our 220-plus episodes. He's back to talk about his newest book just out called The Power of One More, The Ultimate Guide to Happiness and Success. I do not say this about all the guests because it's not true. He is my favorite interview in our first 200-plus episodes. Ed Milet, welcome back to On Leadership. Brother. That's a pretty big introduction right there to live up to. So thank you so much. It's great to be back with you. And I've reflected on our first conversation hundreds of times because you are the single best interviewer in this space. And you got stuff out of me that I didn't even know I had last time. So I hope it repeats itself. Well, that's very gracious of you. You've launched your book. I watched every moment of your superb interview now on YouTube with Jamie Kern Lima. One of our guests as well, you and she had phenomenal chemistry. I loved the balance between her energy and insightfulness and yours as well. I'm hoping to create some of those same nuggets for our uh, uh, interview or our listeners and viewers around the world. Ed, for those final few people who are still under a rock somewhere who may not be aware of your journey, would you rewind, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago? You're in your early 50s. Talk a bit about your own professional, personal background and what brought you now to this new book release, which, by the way, two days ago, your book was number three on Amazon. Not number three, like in a category, number three of all books in print on Amazon. It's an amazing accomplishment. Perhaps it was higher than number three, but phenomenal success on your pre-launch as well. Congrats on the book. Rewind a bit and give our listeners and viewers an reorientation to your journey. Well, great question. Uh, I did touch on number one little for a little while there, which was cool Congrats. that one day. But I have to tell you, um, my journey really, the uh, reason I wrote the book was my father passed away, as you know, not that long ago. And when I wrote the book, it just occurred to me all the lessons that I've applied in business and in leadership that I learned from my dad. Some of those lessons were things that I didn't want to do. And some of them were things that I, that I knew I should do. And so I just believe so deeply human beings can change and improve because I watched my hero do it, my dad. And so growing up, the, the, the short version of the story is I was raised by an alcoholic and drug addict father of the first 15 years of my life. And that, you know, on the other, Napoleon Hill says, and think and grow rich, on the other side of temporary pain, you meet your other self. And I found that to be true. Unfortunately for me, that started at about age five, where I had to start doing things that as a five-year-old, that five-year-old boys shouldn't have to do, which was really protecting my family from time to time from my dad. And I never knew which dad would walk through the front door, Scott. I didn't know if it was going to be sober dad, you know, where we're going to go have dinner and play basketball in the backyard, or if it was drunk dad. But what happened by the time I was five is I was developing, unbeknownst to me, the two skills that I would use the rest of my life in leadership and business. I really only have two. One is that I'm very present with people and I read them well. Why? I didn't know which dad came through that front door. And as a five-year-old little boy, I'd read his physiology, his, his tie tied, as he's slurring his words, as he... Did the key not go in the lock right away? And if it was that way, 
after reading him, I would go into the second thing, which I'd have to communicate. And I'd tell my mom and my sisters, go upstairs, and I'd grab dad's hand, and I would try to, dad, I got a 93 on my spelling test. I hit a home run in baseball today. What did you do, daddy? And then that second thing I have to this day is my ability to communicate and make people feel things. All of that was developed through pain. Little did I know as a five, six, seven, eight-year-old boy trying to manage this father of mine that I was building the skills that I would use in business and in leadership the rest of my life. And and sometimes Napoleon Hill's right, on the, t- on the other side of this temporary adversity or pain, we're developing things about ourselves where we meet a newer version and a better version of us. And so that's the personal side of how I started in my life, very, very young. And Ed, to compliment that, you've also gone on to some immense professional success as well. Check your humility for a moment and talk a bit about some of the professional ventures you've had, perhaps some that weren't as successful as others, but kind of uh, finish off that journey, we'll get into the book. Sure. I, um, my dad got sober, which I know we'll talk about probably in a minute. But um, the day that he got sober, he came back, he went to his first meeting, the sobriety meeting. He came back. I was living at home with my mom and dad. I you know, graduated college, but I wasn't I didn't have a job. That's where my business career started in the same bed I grew up in, same posters on the wall. And my dad comes back from this meeting. He goes, hey, I got you a job tomorrow morning, 6 a.m., show up. And I said, well, I've got a college degree. I'm an educated man. What is this job? What's it pay, dad? He goes, it's $5 an hour and you don't get to pick. Get your butt down there tomorrow. tomorrow. And that's where my business career started, ironically, and it was an orphanage. And I walked into McKinley Home for Boys. All my boys were 8 to 10 years old. I was not qualified to be there. I didn't have my own children. I wasn't a psychologist. But I found in my life, brother, whatever your faith beliefs are, God does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And when I got there, my upbringing and the anxiety I grew up with qualified me. What did these boys want from me? This is leadership lesson number one in the power of one more. These little boys were molested by their parents. Their parents were incarcerated or they had passed away. Instantly, I become their big brother. I take them to school. I go trick-or-treating. I'm there for years with these, like my own sons. What did they want? They wanted someone to love them. They wanted someone to care about them. Here's a big one that almost no one does for another human being with sincerity. Believe in them. And then just show them how to do better. And as I worked there, brother, I started my business career in the financial business. It led to tech and chocolate companies and chip companies and all kinds of different businesses, fitness brands, you name it. What I have discovered in my life, that my business philosophy is that all people want what my boys wanted. And the ultimate leader loves people, cares about people. Here's a biggie, believes in them, and then just shows them how to do something better. And all my businesses, I've carried those same principles from McKinley Home for Boys into my business and life. And that's led to, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars and jets and houses and islands and all kinds of financial rewards that came from that basic business philosophy I've carried with me everywhere I've gone. And thank you for that. Whenever I interview someone, I always read their book. I do my best to read it cover to cover. I research them. I watch other interviews, listen to interviews that others have asked to make sure that this one is unique. However, I watched the entire hour and 40-minute interview that Jamie Kern Lima, she wrote a book called Believe It, a a fabulously successful entrepreneur in her own right, when she interviewed you. And she she teed up a story that I think is so remarkable, I'm going to have you repeat it on this podcast. And it really was this idea about being seen. It's about how each of us as leaders, as parents, as friends, as entrepreneurs, we have, a, we have the power to help other believe in themselves and be seen. You share the story, I think about maybe, was it your first grade teacher? Would you take a few moments and just recap 
this story because I've thought about it multiple times since I listened to your interview with Jamie Kern Lee, but I think it's worth repeating on our podcast. It's a hard story for me, brother. You're going right to it. So, yes, my first grade teacher was Mrs. Smith. And, um, you know, most things in leadership are caught, not taught. You catch it. And I caught something this day from this beautiful soul. Mrs. Smith knew that I came from a broken family. And she knew that I was being teased at school. I was Eddie Spaghetti. I would get bullied at school. She could see the stress on me every morning. And I didn't know this in first grade, but now as a grown man looking back, I, I know. And she knew I had no self-esteem. She knew that I didn't think I was very smart. I didn't think I had any valuable. I was invisible. When you come from a family like that, brother, every morning you walk out of your home, you're ashamed. You know, why can't my, why don't my friends not want to come over? Cause my dad's yelling all the time. Why can't I come from whatever thought and was a normal family. And so I would carry that every day in school. And I was this little boy that was just sad and had no self belief whatsoever. I felt completely invisible and worthless. And she set up this scenario, bro, where we had to take tests for the state. And she set this all up. I didn't know it. And she had this other teacher come in the room, it was actually the vice principal come in the room and say, Mrs. Smith, I need your smartest student. I need the brightest person you have in here because this student's going to represent this whole class as the leader and take these tests for us. And um, I need you to pick them. And I didn't know this, but she had set all that up. And she goes, oh, well, that's little Eddie. And I looked up and I went, me? And she goes, and she kind of mouthed, it's little Eddie. And all of a sudden, for the first time in my life, man, someone saw me. Someone told me I was special. Someone said something great about me. And that little boy got up, me, and I walked to the back of that class, and I think I was walking on clouds. And it changed my life because it was the first time ever that someone said, I see you. You matter. You're special. You're important. What she was really saying is, I love you. I care about you. I believe in you. And it changed my life. And to this day, I owe so much of my life to Mrs. Smith because so many people, man, are going through this world right now, not feeling seen, feeling invisible, feeling worthless, feeling like I'm just average or below average. And who cares? And, and she changed my life in that moment. I, I, am, I, I am almost incapable of telling that story without crying because my whole life, no one ever made me feel that way. And I remember that day thinking, I would love to make, <clears throat> sorry, I get choked up now. I would love to make other people feel the way she's making me feel right now. And it changed my life because after that day, I thought, well, maybe I'm not stupid. Maybe I do have value. Now, I didn't believe it all the time, but all of a sudden I said, maybe. And it opened my life up to the possibility that maybe I could do something great in my life. Maybe I was special. Maybe, maybe I had value. Without that day and without Mrs. Smith, I am not talking to you right now for sure. And I think most people undervalue their ability to impact another human being's life. They don't understand that one decision, one gesture, one thought, one emotion can change another person's life. And Mrs. Smith definitely did that. And that's why I'm sitting here. She is one of those people in my life for sure and probably the main person. Ed, your vulnerability is a gift you're giving to all of us. When I read this passage and heard the story on your interview with Jamie Kern Lima, I thought about the first time my father told me he was proud of me. I was 32 years old. I was at the Minneapolis wow. airport. I was uh, boarding a plane from the funeral of his mother, my grandmother. 
And my father put his arm on my shoulder at like the, at the, as I was getting in the cab. And he said, son, I'm proud of you. I was 32. Um, unlike you, I did not come from a broken home. I came from a very stable middle class environment. But I think my father's um, dad died when he was 10, didn't have a role model there. My parents, my mom's parents were alcoholics. And so they didn't know how to parent. But as I looked, as I listened to your story, and I hear you talk about this, all of us as leaders, whether we're formal or informal leaders in companies, we also have the power to help people be seen, not artificially, but to validate in them their worth. You're a leader of a large company. You've hired and trained and onboarded and terminated thousands of people in your career, many companies you own. Speak to the thousands of people who are listening and watching, millions, that are in fact leaders of people, whether they are parents or formal leaders, what are some things they can do today to make sure those in their purview feel seen? Seriously get to know their gifts. So each human being comes with them a set of giftedness that they know to be true about themselves, by the way. There's two or three or four of them. It could be their kindness, their intellect, their humor, their beauty, their resiliency, you know, their vision. There's all kinds of gifts, their patience. And these, if you end up pointing out those gifts to somebody in their life and you say, look, I see you, by the way, it's one thing to go, you're going to do great. You're awesome. You're incredible. That's just, that just floats by somebody. But if you say you're going to do incredible because, and then you tell me something about me that I know to be true. You know why, Ed, you know why you're going to be incredible here? Not because you're the smartest guy in the world, even though you're a bright guy, because you love your family so much, man, you will fight for your family. You will do anything for your family. And I'll go, whoa. That is true about me. Or you know why you're going to do very well here, Lisa? Because you care so deeply. You've got this heart to serve people. Your intentions are so good. That's why. So it's when you link what you'd like them to do to the gift they have that they already believe to be true about them. Now you got it. Now you're leading. Now you're changing. And by the way, you will be on this many. I'm showing one hand up. You will be one of one to five people in their entire life that made them feel this way. You're 32 years old and how much that stood out from your dad. And if I said to you, who are the two or three people in your life, Scott, that have really believed in you? There's not 30. If you're lucky, there's two or three. For me, it's Mrs. Smith, right? A couple coaches I've had. And these are the people that I cherish in my life because they found something in me. If you're a person of faith, they found God in you. They found the gift in you. And so this is what great leaders do. They take the time, even if it's in brief, to say, well, I see this special in you. You're special because that makes me feel seen. Not you're awesome. You're incredible. Thanks for being here. Grateful for you. Nah, that's nothing. I see you. And let me tell you what I see. I see X, Y, and Z. And then they go, now they really, they will never leave you. They will be loyal forever. They will be talking about you on podcasts 20 and 30 years later, like I am with Mrs. Smith. 45 years later, that's how deeply a leader can impact someone's life when they see the giftedness in them. Ed, next time, can you bring some passion and energy? (laughs) Ed, the book is The Power of One More, and each of your chapters has this concept, one more identity, one more try, one more association, one more dream, one more question, one more goal, one more standard. Without question, my favorite chapter in the book is this idea of one more emotion. Mm -hmm. And I want to kind of congeal our time around this. I'm going to read a passage from your book. People are a composite of a small handful of emotions they live with every day. 
These emotions create our emotional homes. Like any home, your emotional home may not be perfect, but it's comfortable. Riff on that. Well, we all have these three or four emotions. If you take a given week or month of your life, and I said to you, okay, there's a series of emotions you get no matter what the external is, right? So sometimes those emotions are joy, ecstasy, peace, passion, right, comfort, or it could be anxiety, worry, fear, depression, anger, whatever it might be. But you have these three or four emotions you're going to get because our mind and our spirit moves towards what it's most familiar with. So we create a home. Oftentimes, this emotional home was installed in us when we were defenseless as children. And we just carry it. So it's a different set of circumstances, a different set of results. But basically, we live in this home. And, and their emotions aren't negative or positive. You say, oh, fear, terrible emotion. Well, depends on the dosage of it. Fear can cause you to focus. Fear can cause you to prepare. So uh, there's a healthy dose of it. I don't look at emotions as negative or positive. It's the abundance of it. But if you're living in anxiety, you live in fear, you live in worry, and we all find a way to get those emotions, no matter what, in a given week. Things are great, things are bad. If you're a worrier, you'll find a way to get you some worry. And even though it may not serve you, it's home for you. You're familiar. I'll give you an example, Scott. My One of my emotional homes has been for years, even though I've worked on getting more peace, more bliss, more happiness, I've been intentional about getting these emotions. We're, we're Human beings get what they want. We set a goal up, we're intentional about getting it, but do we really want the jet or the promotion or the money, or do we want how we think those things will make us feel? And so we keep having these goals about things and achievements and levels, but what we really want is how we think it'll make us feel. But what if we had those goals but we also had intention about how those feelings are. So I want more peace. I want more passion. I want more joy. If we start to be intentional about the emotions, we can change them. I have this one that's been coming up up until about a year ago, and it's chaos. One of my emotional homes is chaos. And I would even brag, Scott, I function well under stress and chaos. I'm a warrior under stress and chaos, which was true. I'm familiar with it. I'm very functional in it. But I had to ask myself, do I like living in it? Is this something I want to have when I'm 60, 70? Did I really need it when I was 30? No, it's familiar, so I get it. No matter how good things are going, Ed Milet finds a way to get a little chaos. Ed Milet finds a way to get a little worry because I like it. It's where I live. And the truth is, it didn't serve me. Why? Why do I have chaos? I'm the son of an alcoholic. You grow up in an alcoholic household, there's chaos. Nothing's stable. Who's coming home today? What's going to happen? Or we go to a restaurant. Is dad going to yell at somebody? Are we safe driving in the car? How are mom and dad getting along? Right? What happened at work? Chaos. And I became familiar with chaos. And I carried it into my 40s. And even probably truly, truly until I was about 50. So these emotional homes are where we live. And if we begin to become more intentional about the emotions we want, not the things and achievements we want, now we'll change our life. And what's crazy enough about it is, when we get the emotions, the things become much easier to have also. Some of us are hooked on a false belief. Let me just finish with this, Scott. We think, I know I have it, but it's kind of part of my recipe to success and achievement. So this chaos thing, although it's really painful, it's one of the recipes to why I've produced such great results. Is that really true? Or have you done it in spite of it? And what I found out in my life is these emotions that don't serve me that I have regularly, I achieved in spite of them, not because of them. And so I take you, take you through in the book strategies of how to create a new emotional home 
because our lives are our emotions. And if I could say one more little thing on that, it's not the events of our life that define us. It's the meaning we attach to the event and that meaning creates an emotion. And if you're familiar with an emotion, you will start creating meanings to deliver that to you about everything that happens. Perfect example, you and I left right now, God forbid there was an accident out in front of my house. A family was killed in front of us. One of the worst possible things we could experience. Our emotion would be sadness, tragedy, my gosh, you know, pain. That same exact event, Mother Teresa, if, if she were alive, witnessed. Her belief system in her life was that the greatest honor of her life, Scott, was to be with someone when their soul leaves here and goes to heaven. Same exact event, different meaning. She'd get peace and joy from that situation. Believe it or not, it's true. You can look it up. That's an extreme example. So these emotions we have create meanings to events that don't serve us also. That's how important it is. I think it's the most profound chapter in the book because uh, you talk about how we are our emotions. We are yeah. our emotions. And it stopped me in the book, and I sat down, and I talked about my emotional house, and I wrote down what were my you know, uh, five or six emotions. Will you take us a step further, Ed, and maybe instruct those who are listening and watching, how we can better declutter our emotions, how we can determine which ones should stay in our house and which ones serve us for what reasons. Uh, take that a bit further, if you will. Yes, so I always ask myself, the things I want, why do I want them? What do I think they'll give me? This is the pathway to the emotions that my heart is seeking. So I want, the, uh, I want $10 million saved. Well, why? Because I think that'll make me feel safe. I'll never be broke again. And so now I know safety is an emotion that I, my heart is seeking. I've just made the conditions impossible to feel it. And so this is one of the ways we become really focused on the emotions that we want. The other thing in life is that I had this beautiful experience happen to me, brother, where I was very young. I won a contest to go to Hawaii. And I'm running on the beach in the morning. It was before the sun was up. And running towards me was this man. And God's just been so good to me. The man running towards me was bald. I could see him in the distance, sweaty, had like a hairy back. I'm like, oh, who's this guy? He's running towards me. And uh, as he gets closer, I realize that it's Wayne Dyer, Dr. Wayne Dyer. Most of your audience would know who sure. Wayne is. If you yeah. don't, they should look him up. But he's one of the all-time great spiritual and thought leaders, personal development gurus of all time. He runs by me. It's so long ago. I got a Sony Walkman on. So does he. And I pull mine off and listen to a cassette. I said, Dr. Dyer. You changed my life. And he turns back. He had a deep voice like me. He goes, well, I, I highly doubt that. I bet you changed your life. But how did I help you? And he walks towards me, Scott. And here I am, a young man. I end up sitting on the beach and watching the sun come up with Wayne Dyer for about an hour and a half. And at the end of that hour and a half, he said, Ed, I don't say this lightly. I think you're going to change the world. In fact, I know it. And I'm sure he had said that to other people. But to me, I was the only person he ever said that to. And he goes, and by the way, you're incredibly bright your ability to articulate your thoughts. I, he goes, I feel things, Ed, when you speak. I don't know what planet you're from, but it's not this planet. There's something when you speak, I feel something, and I'm right here with you. And I said, thank you. And he goes, and that's not why. Would you please do me a favor if you want to have happiness in your life? I said, tell me, please. He said, never attach your emotions or your happiness to your abilities or your achievements because you'll be chasing them all your life. And when and if they fail, you'll be lost. He said, what if you attached your happiness and your emotions to your intentions? And it changed my life. And it was a gift to me at that time. Because prior to that, just like you said with your dad, I thought love was when I achieved. 
If I had a home run, my dad said he loved me. If I got straight A's, I got affection from my family. So everything was attached to the external result I would produce. Then I'd let myself feel the emotion just for a little bit. Then I'd get back to my emotional home. Sorry, I'm moving on your podcast here. You said don't move. So he said, Ed, if you'll start to attach your bliss to your intentions. He said, Ed, you're going to change the world because you have such a good heart. You're such a good man. Because of the way you grew up, you care so deeply about people. It's special, Ed, and they feel things from you. Please, the rest of your life, attach your emotions to your intentions, and you'll never be without the ones you want. And I've pretty much done that, brother. So I'll remind myself before a podcast like this, when I want some confidence and some strength in my emotions and some peace, I remind myself not of my ability to communicate or what I know, but my intention to serve people. When I close my eyes at night and I pray, I remind myself of my intent to make a difference, my intent to be a good man. And I feel that peace. And so I would remind everybody to get clear and intentional about the emotions you want, but to attach them to your intent, not your ability, not the external. And that was a life-changing, life-altering moment. What I didn't know is, of course, he was writing a book at that time called The Power of Intention, which is a book I would also recommend to people to read. Ed, on a different topic, I've also heard you speak to appreciating that people with limiting beliefs about themselves, about the world, about you, often project that onto you. And, I, and I'm, guess, I'm, I'm yeah. guessing it goes both ways, right? We also have limiting, limiting beliefs, and we project it on, onto others. Will you speak to the power of understanding when you might be in a relationship with a partner, a spouse, uh, a boss, a leader, where their own limiting beliefs might be projecting onto you and diminishing your self-confidence, your self-esteem, yeah. or yeah. even your self-worth. Yeah, often people that project their limiting beliefs onto us, they love us. They're actually concerned about us. Why are you working so hard? Why does this money stuff matter to you? Why do you want to achieve so much? And they're just projecting their small thinking and small beliefs onto us. They're not always antagonistic against us. But how do we know if our friends, our associations serve us? I have a chapter in the book about becoming an impossibility thinker and a possibility achiever. And I have a point that I make in the book that 99% of people on earth today operate out of a filter, a frame of reference in their life, which is their memories and their history. This is the filter in which they think and operate out of. 1% of people operate out of their imagination or their vision. So stay with me. History and memories, 99%. Imagination and vision, 1%. Okay, this is a fact. Why are we happier when we're children? We're happier when we're children because we're operating out of our imagination because we have no history. But then by about age 10, we have a history that's been installed in us with limiting beliefs by loving parents. In fact, Scott, I make the contention there's all kinds of child neglect. There's alcoholism and drug addiction. There's a family where we don't show affection like what you said. I don't say I love you or I'm proud of you enough. But the most insidious form of neglect of all children in the world is a, is a child being raised by a parent who is not pursuing their potential and their vision and their imagination. This is a form of neglect because everything with children and leadership is caught, not taught, as I said earlier. You are limiting, you're projecting your limiting beliefs into those children by not pursuing your potential and your dreams. So here's how you know when you're around somebody who serves you. Are they often saying to you, do you remember? Remember when, remember this, when you're around your friends or your spouse, remember this, remember, remember, how about this? Remember, remember, and they're constantly remembering. This is someone who operates out of history and memory. I try to surround myself with friends who don't do that. 
where my friends say, where are you going? Isn't this moment amazing? What's your vision? What are you dreaming on? What are you working on right now? Where are you heading? Man, isn't tonight special? So they're in the present, focused on their imagination and their future. This dialogue, if you really think through it, most of you, and I love you, I'm saying, when you're with your friends, you're reminiscing. There's nothing wrong with doing a little of that. But if it's the dominant conversation, they operate out of their history and memory. And here's what's going to happen. They're going to repeat it. The same emotions, the same thoughts, different circumstances, different people, same life to tie the two topics together. I want people and most of my friends, I can't get them to reminisce like, ah, man, let me tell you where I'm going. This is where we're heading. This is how amazing it's going to be. And today's a gift, man, because I get to do it today. Those are the people I want around me. I don't want to be going backwards all the time and repeating the same history by thinking the same stuff. Ed, my let's on fire today. Ed, my second favorite aspect of the book is uh, one more question to yeah. ask ourselves. You list about 40 plus questions in the book. Things like, is there one more thing I can do to make my family feel more special? Is there one more thing I can do to show my appreciation for the people I work with? What's one more thing I can do to calm myself down today? A couple more. What's one more way I can worry less about what other people think? And then my favorite of all of them is number 12. Is there one more thing I can do so people will see me less different than I see myself? Yeah. I mean, that's so powerful. Is there one more thing I can do so people will see me less different than I see myself? It really speaks to the power of self-awareness. Expand on that. Dude, you're really good. So the quality of our life is the quality of our questions we ask ourselves. I have a chapter in the book on thinking. What is thinking? Thinking is the process of asking and answering questions to yourself. That's a thought. Change the quality of the questions in your life, you'll change the answers, you'll change the emotions. M most of the time, here's what human beings think. They think they're not qualified to help people. They're not qualified to make a difference. They're disqualified by their past. Something they're ashamed of, a failure, a bankruptcy, a divorce. Maybe they just always felt average and ordinary like I did with Mrs. Smith. And they think, I'm not qualified to do this. And so the question they keep asking themselves is one that doesn't serve them. But what if the question started to be, how did my past prepare me for my future? How did what I've gone through prepare me to be my test become my testimony? Let me give you a quick example. The most important decision of my lifetime was made by my father, which was to try to get sober one more time. There's a chapter in the book called One More Try. I vividly remember my dad go, I'm going to try one more time. And that decision to get sober changed our family tree, changed my unborn children who are now going to college, Max and Bella. Their life is different because my dad made this decision. Millions of people that I reach on a weekly basis, their lives are impacted because my dad made this decision. But thank God there was another human being that I never thought about until three weeks ago, four weeks ago, Scott. I woke up in the middle of the night. I told my wife, I said, babe, someone helped daddy. And I was emotional. She said, what, honey? I said, someone helped my dad. She says, what do you mean? I said, my dad making the decision to get sober and getting sober, someone helped him. Someone asked themselves the right question. How can I help this man? How can I serve him? In the darkest moment of my dad's life when he was going to lose his family and maybe take his own life. And I don't even know where it was. Some bar, some alley, some coffee shop, some precious human said, I'll help you. And here's what's crazy. What qualified them to help my dad was the things they were
were most ashamed of embarrassed of, that they were also an alcoholic at one time and a drug addict. Little did they know when they were lying to their family about their drinking or stealing money to get drugs, that they were being prepared if they asked themselves the right question at the right time to change my father's life and consequently mine and millions of other people. The ripple effect of that one question. So when my dad was desperate, this person asked themselves a question, how can I help this man? And they got the right answer. They could help him because of the things they thought that disqualified them from making a difference was the very thing preparing them to change someone else's life. And so for people listening, it's not only do you need to ask that better question, but you need to know that the things of your past that you think disqualify you, a bankruptcy, a divorce, whatever it is, something you're totally ashamed of, is probably the thing that pain was preparing you on the other side of it to meet that other self of you if you ask the right question. That precious soul, Scott, has affected millions of lives, the ripple effect of them asking an empowering question about the things they thought that disqualified them. In fact, it's what qualified them to help my dad. Different question, completely flipped the script on my life and millions of other people. This is why the book has reached number one of all books in print worldwide on Amazon. Our time is ending, Ed. I wanna to pivot to one final question. In chapter 10, you call it one more higher standard. You write a lot about goals and the connection between goals and standards. I think the best passage in the book is the following. Many people fail or are miserable because they set standards that are too low for how they want to be treated. If you don't establish what your standards are and clearly define them, other people will act to undermine them simply because they aren't clear about what is acceptable to you and what is not. Take us home on that. We get our standards in our life, not our goals. We get about 25% of our goals. We will always ultimately get our standards. And we are constantly teaching people how to treat us based on our standards. We are constantly teaching the world how to respond and interact with us based on our standards. And so if you set a higher standard, and maybe it's as simple as asking yourself a question to go back, what would my standard need to be so that people begin to treat me differently? What would my standard need to be so that I feel as if I belong? And here's the thing, or that I can take over. I don't know if I was the first person to say this, Scott, but I know I was one of them, which is that if you lack self-confidence, it's because you don't keep the promises you make to yourself. That's a fact. And the way to get self-confidence is to begin to keep the promises you make to yourself. You're going to get up at 6 a.m., get up. You're going to drink a gallon of water, drink it. You're going to make 10 phone calls a day, make them. But then I asked myself, once I did that, what would I need to be? What would the standard need to be to become superhuman? not just baseline confidence, but to actually change the way the world treats me and the way the world responds to me. What would the standard need to be for Ed Milet, for millions of other people? And the difference between winning and losing in life, Scott, happiness and missing it is so small, it's almost too scary to talk about. But I'm willing to finish the interview today by talking about it. And I'm gonna tell you what it is. It's the different standard. And that standard, that small difference, is one more. You don't just keep the promises you make to yourself. You keep them plus one more. I get up and I say, I'm going to do 30 minutes on the treadmill. I keep that promise and I do the separator. I do the one more. I do 31 minutes. I'm going to do 10 reps on the bench. I do my 10. Nope. Plus one more. I'm going to tell my daughter I love her every day and I do it. 
except now I do it one more time a day. And when you start stacking up these one mores in your life, not only have you done more, so you're going to move ahead, but you've changed the standard of who you are. And it's so small. It's scary if you miss it. But I know from coaching the top people in every field on the planet, practically, and in my own life, that that difference is one more. Your one decision, one relationship, one rep, one phone call, one more I love you, one new thought, one more emotion away from completely changing your life. And if one more becomes your standard, long term, the world and other people will respond to you in kind. And that's the separator is the standard of one more. And I wish we had more time because there's more insights from your book. The book is The Power of One More, The Ultimate Guide to Happiness and Success out in hardcover. I actually have a galley copy, that soft cover. I encourage everybody to like what I did. We bought nine copies this morning for all of our team members. We're reading it as a team when it comes out, uh, or at least we, we receive it. Uh, Ed, what's next for you? First off, I just want to acknowledge you, brother. You're the best in the world at this. And every time I talk with you, the time flies by. Well, that's nice of you. That's I mean gracious. that. You're outstanding. Thank you, sir. And I'm proud of you. And uh, what I will say to everybody, what is next for me is I want to just continue to serve. I'm donating, I'm donating all the profits of this book to the victims' families in, in Texas that went through the Evaldi shooting. It's actually an organization that helps families of mass shootings. And I believe probably the next thing for me going forward is to take the message that I've been teaching to all the grown-ups of the world. I want to take it to children. And I want to start to reach people before all those limiting beliefs get installed. And so I want to start to take this to people as young as 8 years old up to 18 years old and begin to do my work with young people where they learn about the power of standards and their faith and their emotions and their thoughts in ways that people at that age can understand it so that we change the next generation and we elevate humanity, we elevate consciousness, we elevate the way we treat one another. I uh, Sometimes my heart breaks, brother, in conclusion, to see the way that we sometimes treat each other in the world. And I just believe there's a better standard. I know humans are good, and I know humans can change, as I said earlier, because I watched my father do it. He lived one way the first 15 years of my life and lived magnificently the next 35 years of his life. And so I know there's power in people when they change, and I I think I want to start to do it with younger people and catch them earlier in life. So I think that's next. Ed Milet, your energy and mindset is contagious. Your vulnerability is a gift to all of us. I encourage everyone listening and watching to pick up a copy, get it ordered now, buy it for your team. The book is The Power of One More. Ed, look forward to having you back again on a different topic. Anytime, brother. Thank you. Thank you, sir. And we'll see you back here next week for another conversation on leadership.